Disney's Episode 17, The Nightmare Before Christmas. to Disney-ish, a podcast for Disney fans. I am your host, Christopher, and uh, it's been a while. The last episode that I uh, released was about Moana. I mentioned at the end of that episode that the next one was going to be The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, so I'm really, really excited to be doing this. But it's been a minute. I think it's been three or four weeks since I put that episode out, but I just started up my my secondary job, uh, returned to that. So it's been busy. But anyway, like I said, talking about The Nightmare Before Christmas today. And I'm not alone. Uh, If you heard Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, which was episode four, then you probably remember Rick. And Rick is back with me this week to talk about The Nightmare Before Christmas. So how are you doing, Rick? I'm doing good, Christopher. I am very excited to join you again and discuss this wonderful film. I was only in my 20s when it uh, came out in theaters, <laughs> and uh, I was just over the moon watching it because it felt so much like the holiday specials I grew up with, like The Grinch and Rudolph, and so I was very excited as a child um, for those, and so I was super excited when this came out. Yeah, like on this rewatch, that was something that crossed my mind, too, is that this does kind of remind me of those old stop-motion holiday movies that, you know, were on TV, like like the ones you mentioned, and uh, in doing research for the trivia for this movie, I read that apparently uh, Tim Burton was even influenced by those, especially Rudolph. So that flavor being there, I don't think is um, accidental. You know, I think you're picking up on something that was very much intentional. So, yeah. Uh, Yeah, but like I said, um, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, I was three years old when it came out in theaters and I was four when I first saw it because I first saw it when my parents bought it on VHS uh, and I still own that VHS actually. I still have it and that's when I first saw it and I've pretty much loved it ever since. Um, I didn't watch it that much as a child because I... Really, really loved the movie, but my younger brother did not. He was afraid of it, which, in all fairness, I mean, he was, uh, he's two years younger than me, so he would have been two when it came out on VHS. And, you know, it is kind of a dark, macabre movie for little kids, so, you know, it's understandable, but he, uh, he was terrified of it, so my parents did not like it. They got upset when I had it on, so... (laughs) (laughs) I <laughs> uh, I only watched it a few times as a kid, but then once I got into my teens, it was like, I don't even know. I can't even give you a number as to how many times I've seen this movie. It's definitely at least 50, at least, and that's not an exaggeration. I've seen this movie so many times. It's a perfect background movie to have on while you're doing just stuff around the house. I'm I'm sad that you guys were less I'm sad that you guys were less than 5 years old when it when you saw it, I know. And I saw, saw <laughs> I know. I was, I was, I was kind of um, <laughs> hesitant to even say that because okay. 
I also do a uh, podcast about the TV show Fringe called the Fringe Podcast Rewatch with my friend Daryl. And Daryl's right around the same age as you. I think he might be like two or three years younger. But yeah, that's something that I uh, that comes up a lot between us is like <laughs> when I'll say something like, oh, yeah, I was because Fringe premiered in 2008. So I was 18 and I was a freshman in college when it started. And so like. Whenever that comes up in conversation, he'll always say something like, yeah, rubbing it in that you're so much younger. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Yeah. (laughs) I don't mind. (laughs) But yeah, this movie originally was released on October 13th, 1993 with a limited release. And then it got a more widespread release on October 29th, 1993. Same year, obviously. So two days before Halloween. Uh, Written by... So the story... We're going to talk a little bit about this in this episode, but the story was originally developed and written by Tim Burton. It's based on a poem that he wrote back in like the early to mid eighties when he was working for Disney. And, uh, the book, the poem was eventually published as a book. In fact, I own it. It's a, it was released as a picture book. Uh, but that is what the movie is based on. Definitely a lot of differences between the poem and the movie. So for example, the movie, has Sally in it and some side characters like Lock, Shock, and Barrel, Oogie Boogie, uh, Dr. Finkelstein, you know, people like that. The original poem basically only has Jack, Zero, and Santa. That's it. Uh, because the focus is strictly on Jack wanting to take over Christmas. There really is no romance story with Sally. Um, there's no big bad to, you know, basically, I would argue that <laughs> in the original poem, you know, Jack is both the hero and villain of his own story, right? I mean, um, there is no oogie boogie or anything like that. So it did undergo a lot of changes, but the story was originally developed by Tim Burton. The screenplay is written by Caroline Thompson, or maybe Carolyn Thompson. I've heard that pronounced both ways, so I don't know which is correct, but adaptation by Michael McDowell and directed by Henry Selick. This movie is frequently misattributed to Tim Burton um, as the director, and he did not direct this. In fact, from what I read, he was on set. I think this movie took about two years to make from what I read. Like they started production in 1991, wrapped up in 93. And from what I read, Tim Burton was on set like maybe 10 days out of that entire two years. So yes, he was involved. And yes, these characters are his, but he didn't direct it. So a lot of people think he did. And it's reasonable that they think he did because it does have his signature all over it. Um, anyway, was, was this during the Batman period? Is that yes, why he couldn't? That's actually exactly why he wasn't available because he was directing Batman returns and he was also preparing for Ed Wood, um, which came out in 94. Uh, all right. So starring Chris Sarandon as Jack Skellington's speaking voice, Jack is actually voiced by two different people because we have Chris Sarandon doing his speaking voice and the wonderful legendary Danny Elfman doing the singing voice. We have Danny Elfman also playing the voices of uh, Beryl, the clown with the tearaway face. So Danny Elfman actually has several voices and it just goes to show you how like immensely talented he is because like Beryl and the clown with the tearaway face, for example, sound nothing alike, you know? Catherine O'Hara, too, is also incredibly talented because she plays not only Sally, but she also plays Shock. And then William Hickey as Dr. Finkelstein. 
Glenn Shaddix as the mayor, Ken Page as Oogie Boogie, Ed Ivory as Sandy Claus, uh, Santa Claus, really, but of course they call him Sandy Claus. <laughs> uh, Paul, Paul Rubens, uh, Pee Wee Herman as Locke, and Frank Welker as Zero. So, uh, and then the music, of course, is all written by Danny Elfman, which is usually the case whenever Tim Burton is attached to something, Danny Elfman pretty much always does the music. Quick film synopsis, when Jack Skellington, the pumpkin king of Halloween Town, stumbles upon Christmas Town, he decides to put his own spin on the holiday, taking Santa Claus's place and inadvertently wreaking havoc. So before we talk about this movie and, you know, our favorite moments from it and things like that, uh, I do want to share some trivia with you as usual. All of this trivia in this episode comes from IMDb. Usually what I like to do is I like to mix it. You know, I like to do a mix of some trivia from IMDb, some of it from Disney Wiki. But the reason this is all from IMDb this time is that there really surprisingly was not much listed on the Disney Wiki page. And what was listed was nothing that wasn't on the IMDb page. So all of these are from IMDb. And I don't know if you want me to handle all of these, Rick, or if you want to uh, kind of tag team on them and read some of them as well. That's up to you, whatever you're more comfortable with. You want to go every other one? Sure. Yeah. All right. All right. Tim Burton has said the original poem was inspired after seeing Halloween merchandise display in a store being taken down and replaced by a Christmas display. The juxtaposition of ghouls and goblins with Santa and his reindeer sparked his imagination. <laughs> That's really cool. That is cool. Yeah. Uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas is the first stop motion animated film to be rated PG by the MPAA. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, Danny Elfman found writing Nightmare's 10 songs as, quote, one of the easiest jobs I've ever had. I had a lot in common with Jack Skellington. Having created demos of all the songs in the movie for the director's approval, Elfman had gotten really attached to Jack, since he could relate to being loved and famous as he was with, uh, as he was lead singer of his band Oingo Boingo, but like Jack, he was no longer happy with his situation. Elfman mustered up all his courage to ask his friend and producer Burton if he could voice Jack. But before he could finish, Burton simply told him, Danny, don't worry about it. You got the part. I wonder how that played out when he kind of took it back. <laughs> Didn't he do that? He got the part for the songs, but he, he, he they decided not to use him for the... Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, So actually, that's the... The next piece of trivia that I want to share here, um, because, yeah, what happened was Chris Sarandon was originally, um, no, 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 no. What happened was Danny was originally supposed to play both parts. He was supposed to do the singing voice and the speaking voice, but he just did not feel neither him nor, you know, I don't know exactly who was involved in this. I'm, I'm guessing Tim Burton was one of them, but there was just this general consensus that he wasn't playing him the way that he felt Jack should be played. And so I guess they felt his speaking voice was too wooden and too stiff and not animated enough. And so they, you know, he sang the songs, but then they had somebody else do the speaking voice. And the reason that Chris Sarandon was hired, this was actually the, the piece of trivia here is that they were trying to find somebody who had a very close uh, match to Danny Elfman's singing voice. And in fact, 
I think they did a wonderful job because I remember I was uh, maybe in my mid-teens, like maybe 14 or 15 when I found that out. And I was like, he is? That's crazy because, I mean, the speaking voice and the singing voice definitely sound like the same person. Totally um, agree. Yeah, but that was why they hired him was that they felt his speaking voice closely matched Danny Elfman's singing voice. So, yeah. Very cool. Uh, in the scenes uh, with the street band, especially inside of the town hall, there is a small man inside the base who appear, whose appearance is based on Danny Elfman. Yep. Did you know that? No. Yeah, yeah. And definitely, he's got the red hair and everything. Definitely looks a lot like him. So, you know the scenes where, like, uh, like Jack walks by them, for example? You've got that street band that's playing, like, the... Uh, yeah. So yeah. Like the dirge kind yes. of a dirge. Yes. Of. Yeah. There's a head inside the base. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this was one that I did not know until I did research for this. And I've seen this movie, like I said, probably 50 to a hundred times. And I never caught this before, but in the town meeting song all the way in the back. And I looked this up, I verified it. Um, in fact, um, Rick, if you want to see it, that, uh, this is a hyperlink. You can click on that. Um, awesome. Yeah. And so all the way in the back of the room, there is the evil queen in her hag form. You see her holding an apple and everything. And like I said, I did not catch this until this watch, or I mean, until I did research for this. Uh, so that's really cool because, you know, I love my Disney villains. The evil queen is my second favorite. Very cool. Uh, the scene in which Locke, Shock, and Beryl remove their masks to reveal similar faces beneath was based on a season five episode of the twilight zone from 1959 called the masks, which had a huge impact on Burton as a child. Yeah. Which, uh, that I had heard before, but I haven't seen that twilight zone episode. I've only seen a couple of episodes of the twilight zone. I've been promising my friend Daryl for years now that I'm going to watch <laughs> it, <laughs> uh, because I know I would love it, but it's just one of those things that there's too much to watch and, you know, hopefully I'll get to it eventually. But uh, I know that Tim Burton loved horror as a kid. Like he loved monster movies and, uh, you know, sci-fi and, and stuff like that. That's why he made a movie about Ed Wood because, you know, Ed Wood was famous for making these notoriously terrible, uh, you know, like plan nine from outer space and movies like that. These notoriously terrible, you know, horror slash sci-fi movies. Um, and he loved them. You know, he loved how intentionally terrible they were and how, uh, campy they were and so yeah Johnny Depp played Ed Wood in that movie wonderful 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 movie I love Ed Wood um, but yeah like I said before that was actually one of the reasons that he wasn't really available for Nightmare Before Christmas because he was directing Batman Returns and then was also in the early stages of um, developing Ed Wood despite being considered a villain by many fans Burton himself does not consider Oogie Boogie evil and it didn't give any more information than that, so I'm not really sure what his viewpoint is there. But uh, there actually is an episode of a podcast that I listened to called The Villain Was Right. I've mentioned it on the podcast before. And they look at movies and TV shows from the villain's perspective and try to make a case for them not being pure evil. You know, they try to see things from their point of view. And... They did an episode about The Nightmare Before Christmas and basically made the argument that they're they're horror characters, right? They're Halloween characters. And so 
Oogie Boogie is just apparently too good at his job. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so that was basically their argument was, you know, why is he being, uh, you know, a pariah for being evil and, and scary when that's what they're supposed to do there? You know, so it's an interesting case that maybe that's how Tim Burton feels, too. Oogie Boogie was originally intended to be Dr. Finkelstein in disguise, but Tim Burton hated the idea. In the yeah. extended ending to the film heard on the soundtrack album, many years later, Santa Claus returns to Halloween Town to visit Jack and finds that Jack has about four or five skeleton children. And I have heard that. It's a, it's a, I think it's the very last track on the soundtrack. It's the closing track. And it's like this little short epilogue. It's interestingly not in the movie. It's on the soundtrack, but not in the movie. And it's this little, you know, spoken narrated epilogue about Santa visiting Jack and checking in on him. And, uh, yeah, Jack and Sally have, um, have had kids. So, <laughs> yeah. So in 10 years, we'll see it on some limited edition streaming event. <laughs> yeah, I, I know Tim Burton has been very adamant about there never being a a film sequel. Like, there are technically sequels out there. There's a video game called Nightmare Before Christmas, Oogie's Revenge. Um, there is a comic book series. I think it's called Zero's Journey. Um, and then there's also a novel um, called Long Live the Pumpkin Queen, which is basically about Sally handling the responsibilities of now being queen. Um, so there are like books and video games and stuff like that, but there is no movie sequel. And Tim Burton has apparently been very adamant about that never happening. So like I said, all of these come from IMDb. Um, I'll be sure to have the link in the show notes if you want to, because, you know, there are tons and tons and tons of interesting trivia bits on there. I kind of just pulled out the most interesting ones. So if you want to read the whole list, just hit up that link in the show notes. So uh, that's all the trivia, though. Uh, do you, uh, you ready to talk about this movie, Rick? Let's do it. All right. So as I mentioned before, uh, Henry Selleck is the director. He's also the director of James and the Giant Peach, which interestingly, Tim Burton also had a role or not a role, uh, a hand in. He was like co-producer or something like that. Um, and Jack Skellington also makes an appearance in Jack and the Giant, Jack and the Giant Peach, James and the Giant Peach. <laughs> yeah, James Skellington makes an appearance in Jack and the Giant Peach. Uh, Jack Skellington makes an appearance in James and the Giant Peach. There's a scene where they're basically on a pirate ship and the captain is Captain Jack. And then another interesting thing is that on the soundtrack, uh, the opening, you know, like, uh, you probably wonder where holidays come from. The soundtrack, it's done by Patrick Stewart. I don't know why it's only him on the soundtrack and not in the movie. I couldn't find information about that. Um, I prefer Patrick Stewart's version. Um, I just think he has a, it just, he has a better narrator's voice, I think, than whoever it is that does it in the movie. Um, so I don't know why that happened, but um, and I think he also narrates the uh, that closing that I just talked about a little while ago about Jack and Sally having kids. Um, he narrates that as well. So, yeah, not sure why that is, but... There's so much weirdness in Hollywood where maybe contractually he couldn't work with a certain studio for a filmed element, but it, was, it would be okay for him to do the audio. Do you know what I mean? There's all kinds of weird stuff like that. Yep. And maybe they they recorded his audio first and... 
then, like you said, found out that for some reason they couldn't use that in the movie, but they felt he did such a good job that they still wanted to release it. So, uh, so as I mentioned a little while ago, um, one thing that's kind of cool and interesting about Halloween Town is that the characters, the, the, the residents, the citizens of it are kind of like a lot of them. They're like classic horror archetypes, but they're also in some cases like interpretations of archetypes. So, for example, you have like the basic archetypes like vampires, witches, a clown, things like that. But then you've got characters that kind of stand in for those archetypes. So Oogie Boogie, for example, is obviously the boogeyman because I'm the boogeyman, you know, so he's the <laughs> boogeyman. Uh, Dr. Finkelstein obviously is Dr. Frankenstein, uh, which by extension makes Sally his creature. Um, the mayor is kind of sort of like Jekyll and Hyde, right? Because there's a, a yeah. he's, you know, he sort of has a split personality kind of. And then Jack, interestingly, uh, I mean, obviously he's a horror archetype. He's a skeleton. He's a walking skeleton. But interestingly, he's also, and I think this was intentional. I think I remember reading that Rudolph and How the Grinch Stole Christmas were two of Tim Burton's biggest inspirations for this. And Jack is interestingly kind of sort of like an anti-Grinch because you look at the Grinch's mission in his story and he hates Christmas and he wants to basically take it away from everybody, right? Jack is kind of the opposite of that. He is, he discovers Christmas. He loves it. He loves the way it makes him feel and he wants to share it with everybody, you know, so he's kind of like in a lot of ways an anti-Grinch. Did you happen to notice, uh, I think it's in, within the first five minutes, that there's like a creature from the Black Lagoon-like yes. monster? And spoiler alert, I hear you might be having an upcoming episode that covers the shape of water, which was inspired by the creature from the Black Lagoon. That's an interesting rumor. I don't know if I've heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next episode is going to be the shape of water, and Rick will be joining me for that as well. So uh, very excited about that because I actually haven't seen it yet. And that'll be the first time on this podcast that uh, I'll be covering a movie that I just watched for the first time for the podcast. I hope you like it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but yeah, I did notice that. I did notice that. And uh, that is just a happy accident. Yeah. <laughs> completely happy accident because I completely forgot like when I planned uh, to do this and then follow that up with The Shape of Water. I'd completely forgotten that the creature from the Black Lagoon was even in this movie. Happy accident. <laughs> yep. Kismet. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, but another thing that I was thinking on this rewatch is, you know, in this opening scene, well, technically the opening scene is, you know, we see the, the holiday doors and we get the narrator. Um, but then we see Halloween Town and we get This is Halloween, which not only do I love this song, but I also feel... It just makes such a fantastic opening to this movie because this song tells us really everything we need to know about these characters and this town and what the movie's going to be like. You know, it's just, it's such a great opening. And the song is so iconic now. It's almost like inseparable from Halloween itself. You know, like <laughs> it's the Halloween anthem, basically. It's the uh, all I want for Christmas is you version. Yeah, of pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, it's funny because I think that this movie. Yeah, that's a great analogy to make, because I think that this movie came out around the same time that that Mariah Carey song did. Oh, yeah. This came out in 93. Right. I don't know what year she did that song. 
I think you're right. Around the same time. And it's really hard to imagine like that there were ever Christmases without that song. And it's hard to imagine that there were ever Halloweens without this song. You know, like I did live uh, for three years before <laughs> seeing this movie, but I don't remember those Halloweens. You know, like I, I don't remember my first, second or third Halloween. So uh, for me, this song has always been a part of the Halloween experience for me. And it's it's so hard to imagine there ever being a Halloween without this song. But uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's become so iconic. And thank goodness, because I think they need to give Monster Mash a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. That probably that that was probably you can probably speak to this obviously a lot better than I can. I'm not taking a dig at your age. It's just as a, an elder. <laughs> it's just the reality of it. You know, I'm not yeah, I, yeah, I'm not digging no. at your age. But would you say that that was kind of the Halloween song before this is Halloween was Monster Mash? Uh, you know, it was that and Thriller. That was oh, like yeah. Thriller. But, you know, Thriller is so long. You know, it's like it's it's five or six minutes long. So um, but no, you're right it, that this is Halloween is so iconic and. I remember seeing seeing the movie in the theaters. <laughs> yes, in theaters. Um, <laughs> I just wanted I wanted that soundtrack immediately. I was like, I have got to hear all these songs, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, that is definitely one of the best parts of this movie is the music. Danny Elfman is just wonderful. I, you know, like I said before, he has scored, I think, every single Tim Burton movie except for Ed Wood, and he's he's just phenomenal you know he's he's a yeah. genius he's such a genius and you know charlie and the chocolate factory i love the soundtrack to that movie um that's another one of my favorites um edward scissorhands is beautiful that has a beautiful score uh the batman oh yeah oh yeah i mean that's another thing too it's like you know batman existed for like 50 years before tim burton did a batman movie and now danny elfman's batman theme is like synonymous with batman yeah you know so yeah he's just he's he's wonderful i love danny elfman you know okay so when we first meet jack i'm a little bit confused as to what happens here uh because when we first meet him he is wearing different clothes like i think he's wearing if i remember correctly like red and brown i think and he's got an actual pumpkin head on his head like he his head is a pumpkin and for one thing I don't know if this was intentional, but have you ever seen the movie uh, Return to Oz? Uh, no. Okay, so it came out in, I want to say, the early to mid-80s. It's a Disney movie that is a sequel to The Wizard of Oz. And uh, it has a character in it named Jack Pumpkinhead. And he looks very, very similar to the Jack that we see in this scene. I think that they might have gotten inspiration from return to Oz, especially since, like I said, that was a Disney movie. Um, and plus, like I said, not only is the appearance similar, but that's literally his name in that movie is Jack. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, he has an actual pumpkin head. He's wearing different clothes, but then he jumps into the fountain and reemerges a few seconds later. Those clothes are gone. The pumpkin head is gone. It seems almost like he's being reborn. Um, and now he's the skeleton with the, you know, black and white pinstripe suit that we all right. know and love. I'm not really sure what happened there. Do you do you have any thoughts there? You know, it kind of reminds me of, you remember in Cru Cruella from 2021? 
when she goes into the ball or whatever, and uh, she has a black and white dress because that's a theme. She sets her dress on fire, and then it melts away to reveal this stunning gown. I think that was just a reveal device. Because um, I think with the pumpkin on his head, he kind of looked like a scarecrow. I think it was just a, uh, a way to have a big reveal. Yeah, I think so, too. I'm just, like, curious as to, like, um, in-universe what happened. Like, because it seems like some sort of rebirth. It seems almost like setting himself on fire and jumping in the fountain was oh, yeah. killing himself. And now he's a skeleton because he's dead. So <laughs> did he not always look like that? You know, like, I'm I'm not really sure. But uh, we also meet Sally in this scene. And um, we can see that she's kind of looking at Jack with admiration, fondness. Eventually, of course, we'll find out that there are romantic feelings there. Um, So that's kind of planting a seed that we see her looking at him that way. But she's apprehended by Dr. Finkelstein. Um, We find out that she, because Sally has the appearance of a rag doll, so it seems as if Dr. Finkelstein probably used science to create her consciousness and her sentience, but then stitched her together. Um, but we find out that she's essentially his, uh, slave, uh, prisoner. Like, I I don't know what you would call it, but, um, he does not allow her to leave the residence and he claims that she's not ready. You know, the world is too scary and big and she's not ready to be on her own. But I think it's more so that he is just kind of, uh, you know, he probably, has some sort of uh, fear of being alone or something, because like as soon as he uh, comes to the realization that I, you know, Sally's not coming back, he immediately starts working on a new creature. So <laughs> um, it seems like he just wants somebody to be with him all the time, you know, but uh, she escapes from him by undoing a thread on her arm. And that was something that always <laughs> stuck with me as a kid for some reason, like not in a bad way. It didn't scare me or anything, but that imagery just always stuck with me that, you know, she escapes by just like undoing this thread in her arm and her arm is, you know, there's obviously she's a rag doll. She doesn't seem to have blood or anything like that. So it's not gory at all, but um, she does basically remove her arm by undoing a thread and that's how she escapes. So I absolutely love Sally and she's probably my favorite character in the film. And I love that Catherine O'Hara is the voice, the singing voice and the speaking voice for her. Absolutely. And like I said, she's incredibly talented because she's also doing shock. Dr. Finkelstein, Steen, Stein. (laughs) So that that old movie from the 80s, Weird Science, where the nerdy boys want to build a girl because they, they don't have girlfriends. Is that kind of the same thing with Dr. Finkelstein as he wants to build Sally? And Oingo Boingo is in that movie. Yep. <laughs> They're yep. Yep. Weird science. Yep. <laughs> yes. It's all tied together. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's just interesting because, like, he is arguably a villain. You know, he's, he's holding this, this sentient being prisoner, not allowing her to leave, not allowing her to experience the world. That's also kind of what I was saying before, though, that, but, yeah, but he's also a horror character. He lives in Halloween Town, so... Is he, you know, like, it's just one of those things. And uh, that's kind of, like, emphasized even when after they wrap up, this is Halloween, they do their celebration and everything. Uh, You know, there's a line in the song that goes, you know, that's our job, but we're not mean. (laughs) But it's like, okay, you're not mean. You literally 
give an award right after that to vampires for the most blood drained in a single evening. Like if you're not mean, you consider yourselves good, just scary, but good. Then whose blood are you draining? Because I, <laughs> I was just thinking, I, I think a vampire could collect blood from multiple people, but not kill them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not necessarily saying that they killed anybody, but you know, still it's not, not a great thing to do is to drain sure. people's blood. So I don't know. See, and I, and I thought, to me, I I do think Oogie Boogie is a villain because it seems like there, there's motifs of gambling in his lair. And it looks like maybe if you don't pay your debts, you get melted down. So I, I was thinking he was evil. Yeah, and plus he cheats, you know? Yeah. Like, he if he doesn't get the – he gambles, but then if he doesn't get the results he wants, he just pretends he did. <laughs> I, and I feel like there's like an evilness or a darkness hierarchy where, you know, people that just commit mayhem and mischief – are better or not really as evil as Oogie Boogie, who actually wants to harm people. Yeah, that's a good point. We mentioned this scene earlier where Jack is walking down the alley. He's making his way to the cemetery, and there's the the uh, the band that's uh, playing as he walks past them. And I wanted to talk about this scene because um, one of them, one of the musicians, says, uh, "Nice work." bone daddy <laughs> and okay so there's a meme that has been floating around on disney pages for like four or five years now that it's another situation where this just really makes my blood boil because it's a picture of nightmare before christmas merch at a store that says that that said like it's got a picture of jack and it says bone daddy and the text on the meme says disney you can't say that and it's like it literally says that in the movie, like, <laughs> you know, like you're acting as if they just made this up for this merch. They didn't. It's in the movie. <laughs> and I even saw like whenever I see that meme come up, I always see people that comment on it and say things like, you know, uh, say that you've never seen The Nightmare Before Christmas without actually saying it. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, and, you know, unfortunately, the term daddy <laughs> changes yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't what it means. I don't think that, you know, whoever wrote that line in the movie, I don't think that they meant it in a, you know, in a No. In that way. <laughs> no, I don't either. It's just, you know, some things don't age as well. <laughs> um but he replies to them, Yeah, I guess so. Just like last year and the year before that, and the year before that. And so we kind of, you know, we we get these at first Jack just seems so happy-go-lucky you know he's so proud of being the king of halloween town he loves to scare and revels in all things spooky but then you know we slowly unravel that and learn more about him and realize that he's actually not very happy in this situation he feels like uh it's just the same thing over and over and over again and he wants something new you know he wants to experience something different and he goes to the cemetery and he sings jack's lament which is my favorite song from the movie. I love this movie. Or, yeah, I do love this movie, but I love this song so much. <laughs> um, and we learn so many things about him in this song. You know, we learn that, yes, he does revel in the scares and the screams, and uh, he does take pride in that, but he just wants something, you know, he needs something to stimulate him because he keeps doing the same thing over and over again, year after year, and he just wants to experience something different. And this is obviously very important because it's what sets up the main conflict of the movie, right? Is Jack seeking something else 
and finding it, but then things not going as planned. Um, but like I said, this is my favorite song from the movie, and this is kind of his I Want song. So I've talked on the podcast before about how a lot of Disney movies, the protagonist has a song that has apparently been referred to as the I Want song. And so what this song is, is it's a protagonist singing a song about their main desire, singing a song about what it is that they want out of the world. So Moana, for example, sings How Far I'll Go. Ariel sings Part of Your World. Uh, Belle sings Belle. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Aladdin is uh, One Jump Ahead. You know, like uh, Hercules is um, Go the Distance. You know, like they they have that that song that, just kind of, you know, you hear that song and you know, like what they're, who they are as a character and what their main desires are, you know, and this is kind of Jack's I want song, you know, this is what he wants out of life is he wants something new and fresh and interesting. He wants to be stimulated in a new way. So, um, yeah, but I just love this song so much. Like I said, it's my favorite one. Uh, so, yeah, I was thinking about uh, Jack is, is basically going through his own Groundhog Day where every day is the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. It's like, uh, you know, the same exact holiday year after year, doing the same exact thing year after year. And then the other 364 days preparing for it. Right. So, yeah. Yep. Um, but as an English nerd, you know, I have my <laughs> I have my um my bachelor's degree and my master's degree in, in English. And so I, I've read a lot of Shakespeare. And so this was something that when I first saw this as a four-year-old meant nothing to me, absolutely <laughs> nothing. I had no idea what he was talking about, probably didn't even give any thought to what he was talking about. But then once I started reading Shakespeare in high school and college, and now occasionally teach Shakespeare, I appreciate this so much more. Um, so one of the lines in Jack's Lament, and uh, I can't, this is, like I said, not only my favorite song from this movie, but one of my favorite songs, period. So I cannot recite lines from this song without singing them. So I have to. <laughs> um, but this is one of my favorite lines from the song. Um, you know, he's like, and since I am dead, I can take off my head to recite Shakespearean quotations. And I love this because... Uh, he does actually remove his head and holds it in his hand in front of him and looks at, well, not exactly looking at it because he doesn't have a head now, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but holds it in front of himself as if he's looking at it. And uh, do you, I, I don't know how, how familiar you are with, with Shakespeare's tragedies, but do you know at all what that's alluding to? Uh, Hamlet, I'm assuming. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> so there is an iconic scene from Hamlet. It's, it's arguably the, the scene that Hamlet is best known for, uh, of Hamlet holding a skull in front of him and looking at it. And the whole idea is he's literally looking death in the face and, you know, uh, foreshadowing his own death. And it's again, like I said, one of the most iconic scenes from the movie or from the, the play. Um, and, that's definitely, I mean, that's that's why he says, you know, I can take off my head to recite Shakespearean quotations. He's referring to Hamlet there. So, <laughs> and that's one of those things that's like, you know, that's no little kid is going to get that. No. <laughs> um, but I also really love this scene, not only because I love the song, but also because there's just something very like 
stage-like and theatrical about this. You can almost imagine the cemetery being a stage, you know? And I'm honestly really surprised. This might be another situation where Tim Burton was just like, nope, 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 don't want that. Not going to happen. But I'm honestly really surprised that this has never been adapted into a Broadway musical. I feel like it would be so... Can you imagine how hugely successful that would be? Absolutely. People would be like paying ridiculous amounts of money for those tickets. And I'm just like really surprised it's never been adapted. I mean, Broadway musicals usually have a lot more than, uh, than, uh, what did, how many songs did we say were in this? Like 10, 10, typically when Disney movies are adapted into Broadway musicals, new songs are added. Um, so there would probably be several new songs, uh, which that's nothing to complain about. That would be great. Uh, but yeah, it's just very surprising to me that that's never happened. Just seems like this movie would be so perfect for a, a stage production. Well, and then you have the fact that it has two seasons where it could survive. You know what I mean? Well, I guess not two seasons, but Halloween and Christmas. Oh yeah. Two holidays. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that makes this movie so great is that it's both a Christmas movie and a Halloween movie. You know, right. I think that's, uh, is unique in that way. I can't all the top of my head think of another movie that, you know, works for two holidays. Die hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then always the joke. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Actually, now that I think about it, I can because uh, Batman Returns, too. That's another movie that I usually watch every every December because it takes place around Christmas. It's got, uh, you know, it's got a, a just a very Christmassy spirit to it. You know, it, it ends with, well, I guess this is kind of a spoiler if you haven't seen the movie. But, um, you know, it ends with, um, with Bruce, you know, uh, adopting a stray cat, picking a stray cat up and taking him home. And, you know, that, that I think was just very like Christmassy. Like when you think of Christmas, you think of people being kind and charitable and, you know, so I just, that very much is a Christmas movie to me, but it's also dark and grotesque and definitely appropriate for Halloween. So, but yeah, it's just something that I think makes this movie unique is, uh, it's a Halloween movie, but it's also very much a Christmas movie. And it's a musical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, and I think the way Sally and Jack move, they really almost move like they're in a ballet. Like it's very graceful. Oh yeah. Very flow, flowy, and and so, you're, to your point, it really would make a great musical. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, so after Jack finishes up his song, Sally says, "Jack, I know how you feel." Of course, Jack doesn't hear her say this. She's kind of like saying it to herself. <laughs> Um, but this tells us a little bit about Sally, right? That she too is unhappy with her situation, unhappy with life, wants something more out of life. And, uh, that I think is really like we're meant to, I think the reason that we hear her say that after Jack sings his song is that that's meant to establish this connection between them, that that's one of the reasons that they're going to relate to each other and understand each other is that they have this mutual desire for something more. And, that is also very much a, uh, I mean, I would not really consider this to be a classic. I mean, it is a Disney movie and it is a classic movie, but to me, when I think classic Disney, I think like, you know, like princess movies, you know, and right. this isn't that, but it does have some of the tropes. Like I said, Jack's I want song, um, this connection between these two characters that are eventually going to become a couple. And so I think of like Aladdin, for example, where, Aladdin is unhappy with his situation, right? He's he's a, quote, street rat. He wants more out of life. He's tired of, uh, you know, he feels trapped, basically. 
Jasmine, ironically enough, is kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. She wants for nothing. You know, she's royalty. Uh, so she doesn't struggle. She doesn't starve ever. You know, she doesn't need to steal to get what she wants. But she also feels trapped, you know, and wants more out of life. And that's essentially what connects them. That's how they that's how they relate to each other. So I think we're seeing something similar here where they're wanting us to see this parallel between Jack and Sally, that they're in very different situations, similar to Aladdin and Jasmine. Jack is technically royalty. I mean, look at how huge his house is, you know, it's got like a, a gate and everything in front of it. Um, doesn't want for anything. Sally, on the other hand, is a prisoner. You know, she's kind of like at the bottom of the totem pole. Sally's a prisoner. Jack is king. You know, so they they come from two different, two very different worlds, and yet they have similar desires. So, you know, I I really appreciate that parallel being drawn between them in that kind of ironic way. So anyway, I I one thing I really like about Sally, and I'm with you. I don't know that she's my favorite character in this movie. I think my favorite character, as as basic as it is, is Jack. Um, like Danny Elfman, I've just always related to him. So I just really I've always loved Jack, but. I love Sally too. And one thing I really love about her is how like, you know, she, she, she does stand up for herself, you know? And I, I love when she returns for her arm because obviously, like I mentioned <laughs> earlier, that's how she escaped is she undid her arm. So now Finkelstein has her arm. So she goes back for it. And there's even a scene. I mean, I can, there are so many scenes in this movie that I, I, I might even, well, I wouldn't want to bet my life on this, but I've seen this movie so many times that I could probably just from start to finish, just recite the whole movie without any, you know, without even like watching it just from, from my memory. Wow. Um, I've, I've seen this movie so many times. And so anyway, when she goes back for her arm, you know, uh, Finkelstein is like, you know, uh, Sally, you came back. And she's like, I had to. And he's like, for this? And he's got her arm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I love, though, like I said, she she can be feisty because he's like, that's twice this month you've slipped deadly nightshade into my tea and run off. And she's very quick to correct him. And not only does she correct him, but she's very, like, you know, uh, like, bubbly and excited about it. You know, she's like, three times. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it. she's I like, I want to be given credit for every time I've done it. It's not two times. It's three times. <laughs> Did you um, notice how Finkelstein and Sally are kind of like a callback to Edward Scissorhands? Because um, the inventor from Edward Scissorhands is really Dr. Finkelstein and um, Sally and Edward are very, very similar. Yes. And it, it it's primarily because it's from the same inspiration. Um, yeah. Edward Scissorhands inventor in... Edward Scissorhands is meant to be like an interpretation of Dr. Frankenstein. Um, so, uh, yeah, absolutely. And another interesting thing, you remember who it is that plays Edward Scissorhands, quote, father, right? Vincent Price? Yes, yes. And Vincent Price did originally have a speaking role in this movie. He was supposed to play Sandy uh. Claus. Yeah, he was supposed to play Sandy Claus, and they ended up abandoning that idea because he was so close to the end of his life at that point that his voice was just very, very weak and raspy and they, oh. they didn't feel that it fit Santa Claus's character. So they ended up unfortunately going with someone else, but yeah, he was originally supposed to play Santa Claus, Sandy Claus. <laughs> that would have been so cool actually yes. to hear Vincent Price do that. Yes. Yep. 
Uh, and there's also, this is another situation where this just as a four-year-old went completely over my head. <laughs> I thought nothing of it. Um, but there's also definitely some political commentary in this movie. Um, first of all, you know how like sometimes people refer to politicians as two-faced? Like you hear that a lot, you know? Yep. Yeah, and the mayor's literally two-faced. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's, that's uh, I think that's intentional. Um, yep. And then also there's a scene where, you know, he's trying to get Jack to come out of his house. He needs help planning for the next Halloween. And uh, Jack is nowhere to be found because he went to Christmas town and he's like, Jack, please. I'm only an elected official here. I can't make decisions by myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a great joke that, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I've talked before, I think on the podcast, I'm pretty sure I have about how, you know, one thing that I think makes Disney so great is that it really is created for everybody. It's meant for everyone to enjoy. And this is one of those things where the adults in the audience are probably going to laugh at that. You know, the kids aren't going to think anything of it. They're not going to understand it, but that uh, the adults are going to laugh at that. And it's one of those things that like as a kid, like I said, that went completely over my head. But as an adult, I'm like, yeah, they're definitely taking a stab at politicians there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's so funny that what's was true in 1993 is still true in 2023 <laughs> oh know? yeah yeah yep <laughs> yep um it was it and it did it seem obvious to you or is it just me it it looked like the mayor's nose was cut off for both of his faces kind of like that saying to cut off your nose despite your face isn't that kind of one of those political things people say Yep. So that very well could be another situation where that was an intentional character design. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just as a side note, I am a little bit confused. I have a theory, but I'm a little bit confused about how the government of Halloween Town works. Because if you have a mayor, that would suggest a democracy. Mayors are usually, in fact, he even says, I'm only an elected official here. So he was elected, which means people voted for him. It's a democracy. But then Jack is king. Like, how do you have a mayor and a king? How does that work? Um, my theory is that, and I don't know if I'm right, but my theory is that Jack, his position as king isn't necessarily like a, uh, although I don't know, it kind of seems like it is. I was going to say it's not necessarily like an actual position of power. It's just that, you know, he is crowned that every year because, you know, like he gets yeah. the most screams. So he's crowned that, but it's more like a, uh, almost like a, like a, like a Miss America, you know, like being crowned something <laughs> at a, like a beauty competition or something like that. Not necessarily a governmental position, but, um, I don't know though, because it does seem like he kind of like he, he calls the town meeting song or calls the town meeting. You know, he gives orders to people when they're creating Christmas presents. So it, I don't know. It does seem like he's in a position of leadership. I don't know. I, I just think it's I think it's like in England. I mean, you know, the mayor is in charge and the royalty, a.k.a. Jack, just performs more ceremonial type functions. Although Jack, although Jack does seem to kind of call the shots. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was just saying, it seems like, you know, I mean, like I said, well, now that I think about it, he's not technically the one that. Well, he does, he does say, you know, I'm going to tell you all about it at a town meeting. Um, so call a town meeting immediately, 
you know, but then it's <laughs> then it's the mayor though that goes around town with his loudspeaker, you know, town meeting, right. town meeting tonight. <laughs> like I said, well, he, I <laughs> the I mayor is the one that goes to Jack's house and and says, "Hey, we got to get started." You know, we got to get on the project plan for the next year. <laughs> yep. And by his own admission, can't do it by himself. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We only, we only have 364 more days. <laughs> yep. If anything, it's, it, I would say that it, it seems like Jack has the actual power and the mayor is the one that, you know, it's really just a title, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and so we get what's this, which, um, this is another song that I love. Um, it's interesting. I don't know if you've heard the Flyleaf version of it, but for Nightmare Revisited, the band Flyleaf did a cover of it. And it's really interesting because I think they changed it to a minor key because it sounds really different. Like it's it's darker, you know? Yeah. Um, but this is probably the the most Christmassy song in the movie. I mean, not only the lyrics, but it sounds Christmassy, you know? It sounds like a Christmas song. And like I said before, that's one of the many reasons I love this movie is that, you know, if you watch it around Halloween time, you've got This is Halloween and, uh, you know, the Oogie Boogie song. Like, you've got those those creepy Halloween songs, but then you've also got What's This, which is very much a Christmas right. song. Uh, I mean, it's literally about Christmas. That's what the song is about is is what makes Christmas Christmas, you know, the pies and the mistletoe and the lights around the tree and the presents. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a Christmas song. Um, but I do frequently see people get into debates online about, you know, is this a Christmas movie or a Halloween movie? And that's another thing that just kind of annoys me. Cause it's like, <laughs> that's the point of the movie. Yeah. That's part of its charm is that it's both. So, you know, um, I, I do love the thing about, uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas is just so many parallels to the holiday specials I watched as a kid. Like Zero's nose glows just like Rudolph. I mean, even the even the scenes with Zero look very similar to the Rankin Bass um, stop animation or stop motion animation. Yeah, and I mean, like when when Sally tries to prevent them from taking off by using the fog, doesn't Jack even yeah. say like the better to light my way? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's definitely intentional. Yeah. And even there's some tone like uh, when Sally says, but I don't want to be patient. It sounds just like Hermie saying, I want to be a dentist. Like it, it's the tone is almost exact. Um, but I don't want to be patient. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love for you. some reason, I've always loved her emphasis on B like, but yeah. I don't want to be patient. <laughs> <laughs> That's another Catherine O'Hara gift. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then what's this um, really just sounds like when the Grinch goes to Whoville and he's taking all the decorations and gifts. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Like I said, he's kind of Jack is kind of like an anti Grinch. <laughs> and then the, uh, the scenes of the back and forth between Santa's workshop and then Jack's workshop. Um, so many other, so many of the other holiday specials have done that. And it just, just pulls you right in, takes you back to that nostalgic uh, time. Absolutely. And then, yeah. um, there's one shot. It was like, it's almost like when the movie's almost over, it's like an hour in and um, Jack and his sleigh, it looks just like Santa and his sleigh. I think when he was going for the misfit toys and Rudolph, it looks very similar. This Christmas, like this November and December, I'm going to have to rewatch some of those specials because it's been a while since I've seen them. A lot of them I haven't seen since I was probably like eight, nine, ten years old. And I remember loving them. They were like a, it was part of my, it, it was a staple of, of, you know, yeah. the holiday, but, um, 
for some reason I haven't seen them in a long time, so I probably should revisit them. What's well, funny, even with having them on DVD or being able to stream them, I still want to watch them if they're on broadcast TV. You oh know, yeah, there's yeah, something it's, about it's absolutely that event. <laughs> absolutely, it's different. Yep, it hits different. Hits differently. Yeah. Yep. It totally does. Um. So when Jack gets to Christmas Town, uh. He, I would imagine he has no idea what snow is because he looks at it with marvel. You know, he looks at it with wonder, like, what is this? You know, I mean, obviously that's what he's asking about everything, but um, <laughs> it's the name of the song. Um, but he's looking at it in wonder. So to me, that would suggest he doesn't know what it is. And yet his inclination is to eat it. <laughs> it just seems like, not the smartest thing to do. If you don't know what something is, you probably shouldn't be putting it in your mouth. <laughs> I feel like as a kid, I think I ate snow before I even comprehended what it was. <laughs> Just like Play-Doh. <laughs> then again, you know, I was going to say that, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think if, if someone says that they never tried to eat Play-Doh as a kid, they're lying. Like, I think all exactly. kids have, yeah. Um, I was going to say that the difference there is that Jack is not a kid, but then at the same time, I don't know, in a lot of ways he is like he, you know, he's, uh, he does in some ways have a childlike, you know, persona. So yeah. yeah. Um, but then this, this is just me being an English nerd, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) one of the lines from the song, you know, uh, the smell of cakes and pies are absolutely everywhere. This is technically grammatically incorrect, Jack. Study up on your grammar books because <laughs> <laughs> the subject of the sentence is smell, which is singular. So it should be the smell of cakes and pies is absolutely everywhere, which I know sounds a little bit weird because cakes and pies are plural, but cakes and pies are not the subject. Smell is. So, yeah, just one of those nerdy things I wanted to point out. <laughs> <laughs> you better you better send a sternly worded ma- uh, letter to... Tim Burton and the director. <laughs> yep. Yep. Get your grammar right. <laughs> uh, it's also kind of weird to me how like he sees on a sign where it says, I think it says Christmas town. And um, again, presumably he's never seen that word before because the way he says it even is like, Hmm, Christmas town, you know, like he doesn't know what it is. He's never heard of it before. And yet why would anyone look at that word First time seeing it, never before having seen it in their lives, and know that that's how it's pronounced. Like, if I saw that word for the first time in my life, I would say, Christmas? 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 <laughs> like, how does he know the T is silent? <laughs> Just a very nitpicky thing that does not matter at all, but... You know you know very well they couldn't have put that in the movie. There'd be uproar. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. Um you know, and plus it's just, it's, it's, that's, I would imagine this was probably a very expensive movie to make. Um, and you know, any unnecessary dialogue or animation is, you know, that's going to cost money. (laughs) So yeah, I, I, I'm not, I'm not like actually complaining. It's fine. But I just wanted to point that out that it's, it's kind of weird how he knows how to pronounce that. (laughs) Um, and returning to Sally, you know, one thing that I really, really noticed on this rewatch that I don't think I ever really gave any thought to before is that not only is she like an archetype of the Frankenstein creature, you know, uh, maybe in some ways you could argue like a creepy rag doll, like Annabelle or something like that. Maybe you could argue that. Um, but also she's kind of a witch, you know, like not, not in the 
cartoony, silly, over-the-top way that the actual witches in the movie are, but more in, like, a real-world way. You know, like, she makes potions, she gives ingredients to Jack for his experiments, she has a premonition, you know, so clearly she has some sort of clairvoyance because she sees that Jack's, you know, endeavor here is not going to go well. She has that vision. She even says to Jack, you know, like, I had the most terrible vision, you know? So the fact that she's really good at like making potions and using natural ingredients, um, that she has visions and seems to be clairvoyant. I mean, she's a witch. I had to look up Wikipedia to double check uh, some things. And it says that Sally is a psychic toxologist. <laughs> Which to me just sounds like a fancy way of saying witch. <laughs> Why, you know, it works better on the resume. Sally yeah, has to fill her res- you absolutely. Know, to a resume. Yep. Um, yep. And I, I do love that she's always outsmarting outsmarting uh, Dr. Finkelstein, who's supposed to be this great genius, and yet she's always outsmarting him in one step ahead. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. And uh, like I said, she stands up for herself, too, which I, I appreciate right. that. Yep. Um, but yeah, speaking of outsmarting Finkelstein, this is another uh, minor, I don't know if you want to call it a plot hole. I don't think it's a plot hole. Continuity error, I think, is probably the better term. Um, and this one... I did not notice on this rewatch. I noticed this every single time I watched this movie. I think I might have even noticed it as a kid. But uh, she makes him his soup. She puts frog's breath in it, which we know, of course, is to mask the the smell of the the deadly nightshade. Um, But of course, you know, she tries to cover that up because he suspects he's like, you know, nothing is more suspicious than frog's breath. And (laughs) Sally's like. Uh, I thought you liked Frog's Breath, you know? So she put it in because, yeah, she's masking the smell of the Deadly Nightshade, but she tries to pass it off as if, no, it's just, I thought you liked it. I just put it in there because I thought you liked it. But anyway, she fools him by slipping him Deadly Nightshade yet again, and she does it not only with the Frog's Breath, but also because Finkelstein is suspicious he insists that Sally try it first. He insists that she try the soup first. So she does, but she switches out spoons, right? So uh, she takes the original spoon, you know, kind of knocks it to the floor, and then takes a backup spoon out of her sock, which has holes in it, so that she can make it look like she's drinking out of the, that she's eating the soup out of the spoon, but in reality, she's first letting it, you know, escape through the holes. But (laughs) when she brings that new spoon up to her mouth, when she takes it out of her sock, puts it up to her mouth, there are no holes in it. The holes are gone. So yeah, but it's just one of those things that I've always noticed that it's not important, but just wanted to call attention to it. I just, I wondered if the models are too small to put holes in and, and they thought nobody would notice, but then there, there you were eagle eye Chris. Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so like I said before, we get the town meeting scene when, uh, the mayor and Jack call a town meeting because Jack wants to explain his findings. He wants to share his Christmas town discovery with the citizens. Um, and I really love how, like later on when we see him, there's this really funny scene when we see him like acting as basically a scientist And that's another thing, too. You could argue that Jack, in some ways, is like the archetype of the mad scientist. He's trying to figure out Christmas using these scientific equations and everything. And we see on a chalkboard 
that he's got this really advanced, you know, complicated formula that he's trying to work out. And one part of the formula is, uh, so, you know, like in math, how typically when you're talking about a division problem, so let's say just, you know, I'm going to come up with something simple. You might express like, uh, 10 and then a line under the 10 and then five, which means 10 divided by five. Right. And you would oftentimes word that as 10 over five. That's how, you know, like when I learned division and stuff like that, and cause it's a fraction, right. And fractions, you know, usually to, to figure out, to translate a fraction into a number, you divide it. Right. So like one over two, for example, is one half. If you divide one divided by two, you get 0.5 half. Right. So that's how you like translate a fraction into a decimal. So anyway, um, part of his equation is chestnuts divided by open fire, but, <laughs> but you would say that as chestnuts over open fire, <laughs> like the Christmas song, right? Chestnuts roasting exactly. over an open fire. So just a really cute joke there that I, I appreciate it every time I see it. <laughs> it's showing those equations kind of like life, a life lesson of Jack's just trying too hard. You He's thinking too much about it. Just let it happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, you know, the magic of Christmas is, I think that's definitely one of the points, is that the magic of Christmas is that there really is no rhyme or reason to it. It's just, it makes you feel good, you know? Like, right. it's, it's, yeah. So, um, and that's essentially, well, that's the thing too. Like, I'm not even sure if that is what he arrives at, because I think that one of the things that I really, really love about Jack is that, and he's definitely like one of my favorite characters of all time. It's one of the reasons why uh, this movie is one of my favorite movies of all time. And if somebody were to ask me, like, um, who is your fictional character hero? Like, who do you just like really, really look up to? If I don't immediately say him, I probably will, to be honest. But if I don't, he's definitely in my top five. I just love Jack. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I love about him is that he's flawed. Like, he's definitely not perfect. And he does have a heart of gold. You know, he's kind, he's giving, he's caring. But, you know, he's also misguided. He's definitely very misguided. I think that's one of the lessons that he learns. Uh, he's also very short-sighted. Now, granted, I think he can be uh, forgiven for being a little bit short-sighted, considering the fact that he doesn't have eyes. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> uh, but, you know, he also, he definitely has a bit of an ego and he's also just a tad selfish because, uh, you know, he's, he's like racking his brain, trying to come up with a solution to this. Like, what does Christmas mean? I can't figure out what it means. Um, and then the quote meaning that he stumbles upon is that he should be in charge of it. Like, I don't understand <laughs> how that even answers your question. Like, <laughs> right. how does that define, how does that help you understand Christmas? That's not, uh, yeah. Um, but then also, I mean, he even sings in his song, Jack's Obsession. Uh, you know, why should they have all the fun? It should belong to anyone. <laughs> not anyone, in fact, but me, you know, like, okay, all right. That's, that's definitely a little bit selfish, Jack. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just completely making this about himself, you know? Um, so he's, he's not perfect. He's, he's the protagonist. Um, I definitely think he's heroic. He ends up doing the right thing in the end, but he's definitely, I think he has a little bit of an ego. I think there's a part of him that really, really likes being the king and likes the attention that he gets. I think when I watch, uh, 
you're kind of pulling for Jack all the way through. And, and when he keeps missing the point, you're like, oh, come on, come on, man. <laughs> and I, I feel so bad at the part. Uh, again, I think it's like an hour or so in where it looks like he's dead and he's falling into the angel statue's arms. And I'm like, oh, man, I feel so bad for him. It's going to smart. It's going to hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because at the end of the day, I mean, he even says this. I never meant for any of this to happen. I was trying to do right. something good, you know. So, um, but you know what they say about good intentions. Yep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but another thing that I got thinking about, well, actually, I think about this every time I watch the movie. But, you know, in the Jack's Obsession song, when we see his house, um, why does he have an electric chair? I really hope that they're not, like, you know, executing people. <laughs> <laughs> well you know maybe it was a gift from dr finkelstein <laughs> oh maybe yeah or, or he asked him if he could store it for him hey can you can you keep this in your house yeah although i, I wonder why dr finkelstein has one <laughs> it could be is electroshock therapy chair the same as electric chair do you know what i mean could yeah yeah i mean i don't know that they've ever used electric chairs for electroshock therapy i think they've pretty much always been used for execution but maybe that's a possibility i mean especially since this is not we're not talking about the real world we're talking about this <laughs> <Right>. fantasy halloween <laughs> world so yeah um but uh the mayor you know says to jack after they come up with this plan of okay we're gonna make christmas our own uh jack is basically going to be santa claus and be in control of christmas and uh the mayor says to jack you know, how horrible our Christmas will be. And Jack corrects him. No, I love how he says that. He's like, no, <laughs> how jolly, you know, and the mayor's face, you know, switches around to the, to the sad one. You know, he was like really cheerful and happy, but now it's switched around to the sad one. Um, and he's like, oh, how jolly our Christmas will be. And he's sad about it, you know, and, this is like, I always appreciate this type of like ironic humor. You see similar things in like the Adams family and the monsters where, you know, because these are like, uh, like a spooky family, you know, they, they think that sunshine is depressing, you know, they prefer clouds and rain and they, they, they think sunshine is depressing. And, um, like if they, I, I know that a joke that came up a lot in the monsters, for example, was like thinking that, uh, really clean and tidy houses that didn't have any, you know, like uh, cobwebs and stuff like that was like, you know, unappealing. <laughs> um, so they just, you know, they have like this this backwards idea of what it means to be happy and joyful. You know, like right. to them, spooky, scary things are happy and joyful. So uh, I just appreciate that type of ironic humor. Like I said, you see that in a lot of other things, too, like the Adams Family and the Monsters. Uh, they, they always say everything's wonderfully dreadful. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Uh, Jack, you know, another one of his flaws, I think we talked about this a little while ago, I think when we said that he does kind of somewhat have a childlike demeanor to him. Um, but another one of his flaws, I would say, is that he's apparently very naive because he tells Lock, Shock and Barrel not to involve Oogie Boogie, you know, uh, leave that no account oogie boogie out of this, you know, and they promise not to, they say, of course, Jack wouldn't dream of it, Jack, but they're also like giggling and laughing evilly. It's like, 
it's so obvious that they that's exactly what they plan to do. I don't know how he doesn't pick up on that. It's so obvious that they're lying. And I'm not just talking about the fact that we can see that they're crossing their fingers behind their back. <laughs> it's in their voices. The mischief is in their voices and they laugh and giggle. It's like, how, Jack, how are you buying this? <laughs> well, you know, when you outsource to the lowest bid, <laughs> you yeah. get what you get. <laughs> yep. Uh, so then we get another song, Kidnap the Sandy Claws. This is the song that Lock, Shock, and Barrel sang about their intentions with Sandy Claws. Um, and I don't hate this song. I love all of the songs from this movie. Um, but, you know, if I had to pick a least favorite, I might go with this one. Um, I just feel like if I were forced to identify any one of the songs from this movie as annoying, <laughs> this would probably be the one. Um, again, I, I wouldn't say that I do find it annoying, but to me, it just doesn't have the it doesn't have the theatricality of this is Halloween. It doesn't have the, the beauty of Sally's song. You know, it doesn't have, it's just not, it, it's not on par with, with a lot of the other songs in the movie. So, um, I love the look on Jack's face when lock shock and barrel bring him the Easter bunny. <laughs> <laughs> like the Easter bunny jumps out of the black bag and Jack just has this wide eyed, like, you know, just this shock on his face. But it's not like an angry shock. It's like, what is that? You know, he's like intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> I always die laughing. And then I also love it. This is another scene where I just, this is one of my favorite scenes from the whole movie. It makes me crack up every time. Uh, you know, when Lock, Shock, and Barrel are arguing over, you know, going through the wrong door. And Jack gets them back on track by... Uh, like making this really scary face and roaring at them. <laughs> it's just so like, it's so left field. It comes out of nowhere at no point at any other time in the movie. Does he ever do anything like that? I just, I, I love the spontaneity of it. It's so funny. <laughs> that uh, bunny's face is so cute and sweet. And I kept thinking to myself, oh, please don't let anything happen to that bunny. <laughs> I wasn't sure where they were going. I feel really sorry for the bunny because it's so clear that he's like terrified, you know? Um, but the ironic thing is that um, he probably wouldn't have been harmed by anybody unless it was like Oogie Boogie um, because he even, I, for, I can't remember the name of the character, but I think it's the character with like the overalls and the ax in his head um, that uh, the Easter bunny approaches him and like sniffs him. And he's like, Bunny, you know, <laughs> but that terrifies the, the Easter bunny and he goes back into the bag. But to me, like the, the character that said that again, I think it's the one with like the ax in this in his head and the overalls. Um, You know, he seemed to have like this childlike wonder, like, you know, like, oh, adorable bunny rabbit, you know, so he wasn't going to hurt him. But then there's there's another scene where Jack seems to be expressing some more selfishness and uh, short sightedness and just all wrapped up in his own world, not paying attention to other people. Um, in fact, now that I think about it, he kind of even acknowledges that at the end when he says, you know, I can't believe I never realized that you, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but that's when he realizes that, oh, wow, like Sally's cared about me this whole time and I didn't notice because I wasn't paying attention. But he's expressing selfishness here because Sally is repeatedly trying to warn him that this is a bad idea. And he is not, you know, one thing that is kind of frustrating about the way that the scene is written um, 
I mean, I don't know how else to do it. it they, they kind of wrote it in the only way that they could, the way that they had to. But it is a little bit frustrating to me that Sally doesn't, like, she doesn't double down on it. Like, no, Jack, that's not what I'm talking about. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not talking about my ability to do your costume. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your idea to do Christmas in the first place. It's a bad idea. You know, but she doesn't double down. She kind of allows him to continue misinterpreting what she's saying, which is a little bit frustrating, but also I feel like that's kind of what needed to happen. You know, that's right. Yeah. So I don't mind that they wrote it that way, but yeah, I mean, she keeps trying to tell him, you know, it's going to be a disaster. And he says, how could it be just follow this simple pattern here? You know, because he thinks she's talking about the costume, you know, that her trying to make the costume is going to be a disaster. And she even says, but it's a mistake, Jack. And he says, now don't be modest, you know, (laughs) Um, because she's trying to warn him that this is a bad idea and he's only hearing what he wants to hear, you know? So again, a little bit of selfishness, but you know, like I said before, I love that Jack is flawed. It makes him such a real relatable character um, because no human being is perfect. And I think it's really, it can, it can feel really good when, when you see, characters that are being written as heroes as protagonists as good people but they still have some personality flaws you know because that makes them very relatable and real so um i and plus he develops like i said he does realize when he gets to the end of the movie that he's hasn't really been paying attention to other people so well and this and this makes you know women sit up and say you know we go through this all the time no one ever listens to the woman yep yep absolutely yep and if they would just listen to the women they would (laughs) not stumble sandy claus even says you know next time you have a crazy idea to take over somebody else's holiday i'd listen to her she's the only one that makes sense around this insane asylum (laughs) and maybe that was maybe when jack first started noticing you know what this person here is kind of awesome Yep. That's, yeah, that's actually a good point that I never thought about before that. That's when he realized that, Oh, she's been trying to warn me this whole time and I wasn't listening. Right. (laughs) Yeah. She cares about me and someone else is seeing it. Um, so lock shock and barrel do eventually get the real Sandy Claus. And every time I watch this, I always wonder like what must be going through his head. I mean, I don't know if he's aware. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if he's aware of Halloween and Halloween town, you know, uh, Jack didn't seem to be aware of Christmas, so right. I don't think that he is. And so to imagine like, you know, waking up, you know, getting out of this big trash bag and opening your eyes, looking around you and seeing a skeleton, a vampire, you know, zombies, ghouls, like I can't even imagine <laughs> how terrifying no. that must have been. Uh, you know, he looks around and I love how they, I think they want you to be thinking that because they even, they give you this shot of like, you know, panning across and seeing all of these characters. And it's kind of from his point of view as if we're looking through his eyes. Right. So I think they wanted us to think that like, imagine what must be going through his head right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we then get making Christmas. That's the next song in the movie. And we see, the citizens of Halloween town making gifts. But the ironic thing of course, is that because they don't really fully understand Christmas and to a certain extent, Jack even enabled that because he even says in the town meeting song, because they're not understanding it, right? The town meeting song, he's trying to explain to them what Christmas is. Um, but you know, they're 
saying things like, oh, is there a is there a dead, you know, is there a severed foot inside the stocking? And, you know, no, there's no foot inside, but there's candy. And sometimes, you know, so it's like he's trying to explain to them the spirit of Christmas, but they're not getting it. At some point in the town meeting song, he even says, well, I might as well give them what they want. You know, so he kind of enables this idea of, you know, making it spooky. Um, but that's also because of his, you know, he's naive and he doesn't fully understand Christmas either. He, I think he pretends that he does, but I think here's the thing. And this is another reason why I really love and appreciate this movie. Jack understands the, the, the love and the warmth and the, uh, just, you know, that, that sense of family and togetherness and, uh, harmony and everything that some people feel around Christmas that, you know, what Christmas is supposed to represent. He understands that he doesn't understand what that means in the context of Christmas. So he uses Halloween as a frame of reference because that's all he knows. One thing I really appreciate about this movie is that it does highlight this idea of, you know, spooky things because a lot of people, myself included, do really, really love Halloween. In fact, Halloween is my favorite holiday. So, you know, spooky things and, and uh, macabre things can bring joy too, you know, and that's kind of who Jack is. He's a good person. He's got a good heart. He understands warmth and love and friendship. He understands that, but he's spooky, you know? So uh, I, I just, I, I love that aspect of the movie. And that's, I think, what we're seeing happen here is he's trying to, quote, make Christmas, but it still very much has that Halloween spin on it, that spooky spin on it, which, you know, of course, the main reason that that's problematic, and this is another reason why I'm like, well, who exactly are the villains here? Because is Oogie really the worst one? I mean, and I agree with you. I think in a lot of ways he is, but just kind of like playing devil's advocate and looking at it from the perspective of somebody like Tim Burton and also that podcast I mentioned a little while ago. Uh, I mean, they literally gifted some kids these giant snakes that I think we're probably going to eat them. <laughs> you know, it's Oops. like... Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there was even like that, that, uh, one of my Jack Skellington Funko Pops came with the vampire teddy. It's like a little accessory. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah. So I have that. Um, but that's like the, the, uh, the teddy bear that kind of has like cat ears and it's got right. the, the fangs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that thing like chases the kid up the stairs and was apparently going to bite him. So it's like, I mean, you're literally gifting, dangerous deadly creatures to these kids like how is that not malicious how is that not evil <laughs> but i don't know how much i i don't know how much jack was behind that you know because um it seemed like he was overseeing a lot of what was happening when they were making the toys but i don't i don't think it was actually him making the toys he basically you know, put the citizens of Halloween town to work as elves. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of them were probably making these toys and they understood Christmas even less than Jack did. So, um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, making Christmas. That's the, the next song in the movie. We then get Oogie Boogie song. This is the villain song. And, uh, it starts off with, uh, Oogie's lair basically being black, like dark. And, 
the little bit of color that we do see in it is like very, very like bright neon, almost like um, I'm sure you've seen before, like a, like a black light poster and what it looks yes. like when you put a black light over it. Um, those bright neon colors like that's what it looks like and I just think to myself like this is such a visually beautiful scene this must have been so expensive to make um it reminds me a lot of in the last episode I talked about Moana and there's a scene in that movie when Moana and Maui first go to the realm of monsters and it has a very similar look where the colors are very very bright like black light neon colors and I don't know it's possible that that was inspired by this scene in the nightmare before Christmas. Cause it does definitely have a very similar look. Um, and plus both are kind of the lair of the movies. Well, I don't know. That's the thing. I talked about this in the last episode, but I wouldn't say that Tomatoa, I don't know if you, have you seen Moana? No. Oh, you know what? I did. I'm sorry. I did see it. Okay. Um, you know, some people consider the big crab to be like the main villain of the movie. I don't, he's in it for like five minutes. If that, He's not the major obstacle. He's not the major problem that they need to solve. So he's a very minor antagonist, in my opinion. He's definitely not <laughs> He's definitely not the main villain. Uh, but anyway, you know, it's his lair anyway, where you're seeing all these bright black light colors. So um, and it's where he sings his song. He sings shiny. So um, could very well have been inspired by this. I, I thought the black lighting kind of looked like Day of the Dead stuff. Yeah, yeah, I can see that too. Definitely. Like, was Coco Coco the one movie that had the Day of the Dead as the, as the plot yep. backdrop? Yep. Yep. Um one of my absolute favorite Disney movies makes me ball my eyes out every single time. Yeah, definitely will be is, covering it. Is it is great. Yep. Definitely will be covering it on the podcast eventually. Um pencil me in for that one if you can. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh so Sally then sings uh, Sally's song, uh, and this, I think, probably, I mean, this is kind of sort of her I Want song, although not really, because the I Want song is typically near the beginning of the movie. It's usually the protagonist, it's the first song that the protagonist sings, um, and it's the main character, the main protagonist, the main hero that's singing it. So it's not really, but... It's similar, um, but, you know, she sings Sally's song, which, you know, again, I think by this point, even people watching the movie for the first time probably suspect that she has feelings for Jack, um, <laughs> but this song, obviously, it's confirmation, you know, like, we find out for sure that she does, um, you know, we even get that line near the end, um, it's never to become for I am not the one, you know, so, uh, it's definitely confirmation that she has feelings for Jack. Um, so have you heard the version now? You know, anyone who knows me knows like Evanescence is my favorite band of all time. Amy Lee just has this ethereal otherworldly voice that is unique that I've never heard anybody else emulate. Uh, I love Evanescence so much. And have you heard the version that Amy Lee did of this? Yes, I have, and I love it. Yeah, it's just, I remember the first time I heard it, and I was, like, blown away. I was like, oh, yeah. this song was made for her. Like, she, <laughs> she's just, it's so incredible. I mean, I know that this is probably, for some people, like, a sacrilegious thing to say, but, I mean, her version just blows the movie version out of the water, in my opinion. It's so good. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, this is a really beautiful song. Uh, it's kind of heartbreaking, too, because... 
you know, Sally's kind of uh, convinced that the feelings are one-sided, uh, especially since, you know, he doesn't... He's not reciprocating. Yeah, he's not even paying attention to her. So, you know, she's kind of convinced that, yeah, this is never going to go anywhere. It's it's unrequited, like... Um, but then I do love, and we'll talk about this a little later, I love how there's just something so beautiful about the fact that when Jack does confirm at the very end of the movie that he does have feelings for her, it's the same melody as Sally's song. <laughs> yes. I love that. That's so beautiful. It, that song is so wonderful. I mean, bless Catherine O'Hara for performing that in the movie because I loved it. The, even though uh, Amy Lee's version is so good and and, and probably resonates more. I think with people our age, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Our age span. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, and I mean, how many times are we probably saying that in the mirror <laughs> to ourselves? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. So another thing that I wonder about this movie is, you know, and this to me does kind of seem like somewhat of a plot hole. I'm willing to overlook it. It doesn't even impact <laughs> my rating at all. It doesn't even impact my, you know, the way that I feel about this movie at all, really. But I think this might be a plot hole. So, uh, we get the impression early in the movie that the only way to get to these other holiday worlds is through the, the trees, the doors in the forest. Um, I mean, Jack, when he goes through the door to Christmas town, he even falls like a long way before he lands there. So the implication seems to be that these are literally other dimensions that the only way to get to them is through these doors. But, he leaves Halloween town by flying to wherever it is that he goes. Like he doesn't need to go through a portal or a door. He flies there, which suggests that it's not another dimension. It's the same world. Um, and also where does he go? Like when he's delivering presents, is that our world? Is that like the world that you and I live in? Or is that Christmas town? <laughs> I'm kind of confused as to where he went um, and why he didn't need a door to get there. He'll also eventually return to Halloween Town without going through a door in that forest, but instead just by going through the graveyard. Like he goes through, what do you call those? It's not, I don't think it's mausoleum. What is it called? Like that thing that he goes through where it's like a grave, but it's doors that you open and then go down almost like you're going into a cellar. Um, I was going to say mausoleum too. Yeah, maybe that is the right word. I should know that. But um, anyway, yeah, that's how he crypt crypt crypt. Maybe that's right. Yeah. But um, but I mean, that's how he gets back to Halloween town from wherever it is that he was delivering presents is he goes through a crypt. He goes through a part of the graveyard. Yeah. So that would suggest that the doors in the forest are not the only way to get to other worlds. So it's just that I think that is probably a plot hole that they didn't really think about. Um, but like I said, it doesn't really bother me. Um, and then also, like, when Sally tries to solve the issue, that's another reason I do really appreciate how they write Sally in this, is that, um, I mean, she does sort of end up still being a damsel in distress that Jack rescues. But, you know, even before that, though, she tries to be heroic. She takes it upon herself to go rescue right. Sandy Claus, and I really appreciate that. But, you know, she says, like, where did they take that Sandy Claus? And it almost seems like there's, like, a deleted scene here where she went and interrogated and apprehended. Like, she went and talked to Lock, Shock, and Barrel. Like, where did you bring him? We need to figure this out. You know, we need to—Jack is in danger. Like, we've got to figure this out and put a stop to it. Where did you bring him? 
You know, it almost seems like there's a deleted scene there because it's like, well, she's, she's psychic. So <laughs> that's true. Actually, that's a good point. That's a, I didn't think about that. You're probably right. Um, because yeah, it's like, she says, where did they bring that Sandy Claus? And the next thing we know, she's at Oogie Boogie's lair. Like how right. did she know that's where he was? So, uh, it, yeah, it just almost seems like there's a deleted scene missing, but you very well could be right. That's a good point that I never thought about is that maybe she, you know, reflected on it, used her premonition, you know, her power of premonition and found him very well could touch, be touch something that belonged to lock, stock and barrel. And yeah, that could be. Yeah. I was, I was thinking, you know, as far as the traveling, maybe they use the Barbie logic, the Barbie, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, as Sally feared, as she saw in her premonition, Jack's Christmas is in fact a disaster. Like you pointed out earlier, he kind of sort of, I, I don't know. I don't think he actually does quote die. Although he's already dead. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> The interesting thing is, though, is that if he is already dead and is therefore undead and essentially immortal, the citizens of Halloween Town don't seem to understand that because they do think he's dead, right? When it's announced that he's been blown out of the sky, they say, like, Jack is dead. So they seem to think that he's capable of dying. But the interesting thing is, is that in the video game that I mentioned a little while ago, uh, uh, Oogie's Revenge, whenever Jack dies like whenever you uh like you're up against an enemy and you're bested and you die it then shows a cut scene of jack you know laying down in the arms of this angel statue and zero resurrecting him it also makes me wonder if that's what we're supposed to see happening here in the movie is that he did technically die and then zero somehow resurrects him by i think he like nudges his nose or something or kisses him or something and uh then he he wakes up so I don't know. Maybe he did technically die and was resurrected because he's undead and can't actually die. But he sings the song Poor Jack, which I mentioned a little while ago. And I wrote a blog uh, several years ago. In fact, the date is here, January 19th, 2016. So almost eight years ago now. Um, I wrote a blog entry on my music blog. I'll link this in the show notes for anyone who wants to go and read it themselves. But I did want to take a minute to read this blog because I'm, you know, I'm fairly proud of this analysis of it. Um, so what I said is, uh, I wanted to take the time to talk about this song. Please note that this blog entry will contain spoilers about the film, but if you haven't seen it, then what the Halloween town is wrong with you? <laughs> the song is titled poor Jack and is sung by Jack. Danny Elfman provides his singing voice after he is shot out of the sky. His attempt to take the guise of Sandy Claus, his name for Santa Claus and be in charge of Christmas rather than Halloween for a change fails miserably. And he sings this song about how terribly sorry that he feels for himself. The song is basically Jack's dead man's pity party. Or is it? Let's take a look at the song's lyrics, shall we? What have I done? What have I done? How could I be so blind? All is lost. Where was I? Spoiled all. Spoiled all. Everything's gone all wrong. What have I done? What have I done? Find a deep cave to hide in. In a million years they'll find me. Only dust and a plaque that reads, here lies poor old Jack. Like I said, Jack is pitying himself. This could, after all, be one of the most depressing Disney songs ever, right? Wrong. Here's the rest of the song. But I never intended all this madness. Never. And nobody really understood. How could they? That all I ever wanted was to bring them something great. Why does nothing ever turn out like it should? 
Well, what the heck, I went and did my best, and by God, I really tasted something swell. It's really hard to read this without wanting to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> I won't object if you want to sing it. <laughs> uh, and for a moment, why, I even touched the sky. And at least I left some stories they can tell. I did. And for the first time since, I don't remember when, I felt just like my old bony self again. And I, Jack the Pumpkin King, you have to sing that part. You have to. Um... You know, that's right. I am the Pumpkin King. Uh, and I just can't wait until next Halloween because I've got some new ideas that will really make them scream. And by God, I'm really going to give it all my might. Uh-oh. I hope there's still time to set things right. Sandy Claus. So people give Let It Go from Frozen, which don't get me wrong, I love. So much credit for being such a self-empowering Disney song. But ignore this probably because of the first part of the song being a lament about his failure. However, Jack comes to the realization that despite everything that went wrong, his intentions were good and he isn't a bad person. He learns from his mistakes and decides that he wants to do better. He also decides that there is nothing wrong with who he is. Gone is the self-loathing that we hear in the early number Jack's Lament. Here it is replaced by self-acceptance and self-love. Only then is he able to see himself as someone who is lovable. Only then does he realize that Sally loves him. In some ways, I honestly think that this is even more empowering than Let It Go, which is basically the ultimate anthem for introverts. <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I, you know, it, it's an interesting song because it is, which, you know, in some ways is one of the themes of the movie, I think, is duality, you know, because it is definitely a song that is, in nature, you know, very it has a dual nature to it. Like approximately half of it is Jack feeling sorry for himself, hating himself, you know, feeling like everything he tries to do, he screws it up and makes a mistake. But then, you know, about halfway through his tone changes and he starts to accept himself and he learns from this mistake. And I think that's partly what makes Jack such a wonderful, powerful character. No, I, I really liked your commentary on that. And it may be like the song, a whole lot more. I never would have made that Let It Go uh, connection. Um, One of the big differences there, of course, is that, you know, Let It Go is, it, it is definitely a, a song about self-love and empowerment, but it's also very much about isolation and, you know, closing your heart off to other people. And that's, you know, that's that's probably not healthy. So, you know, in some ways it's not the best comparison, but I think just in that it being self-empowering you know and i mean let it go was kind of made for the masses the pop masses the, the poor jack was never going to get to that you know level right so oh it, absolutely but not. it was but it's good to see that in a similar light you know and, and be able to appreciate it more um <laughs> and you know as as christopher as you know i'm not a horror movie guy so the the scene um <laughs> where the snake is falling the tree kind of freaks me out a little bit <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, that could have been a child that it was swallowing up like that. Right. Like who, who did that? <laughs> uh, I mean, Jack definitely needs to have, cause that's the thing. Like Jack is like blaming himself for all of this, but I don't think this is all his fault because I don't think that Jack would have ever sent, you know, a giant snake to not intentionally, you know, like he never would have intentionally sent like a vampire teddy into a kid's home that was going to kill a kid or, you know, a, a giant snake that was going to swallow somebody up whole. Like <laughs> he never would have done that. He was trying to spread joy, you know, so it's not all his fault. And this is where I get myself in trouble by <laughs> reading too much into things or I don't know. Um, I, I think 
those scary things were never going to cause actual harm or death. Like the snake would have just swallowed a tree and been done. But it's scary for someone that has no appreciation for that. You that's, know? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Like the, the vampire Teddy wasn't going to hurt the kids, but they didn't know that. <laughs> right. It was probably just trying to be scary. It was chasing them and trying to be scary, but it wasn't actually going to hurt them. Right. Yeah. They were tre- treating them just like they were in Halloween Town because the Halloween Town people would have loved it. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. That's a really good point. Really good point. <laughs> Um, another one of my favorite scenes in this movie is, uh, you know, Oogie Boogie thinks that he has killed Sandy Claus and Sally, but Jack has rescued them and he doesn't hear like he, you know, he doesn't hear the sound that he wants to hear. So the, the slab thing that he had, uh, Sally and Sandy Claus restrained on after he realizes that, oh, wait, that's not the sound I wanted to hear what happened he turns the slab back around and Jack is on it. And I just, I love the look on Jack's <laughs> face. I love his body, like his, his, uh, the, his posture, you know, like he just has yeah. this satisfied look on his face. Like bet you weren't expecting to see me, were you? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, since you're a Deadpool fan, um, this came to my mind when, when Jack and Oogie Boogie start to battle, um, and Jack kind of gets all fours and looks like a spider. It reminds me of how the Deadpool character is put in all these different positions and, and personas. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah, and definitely, like, every time I watch this movie, I think the same thing, that, you know, when he crawls on all fours like that, he's yeah. very spider-like. Yeah, yep. Uh, so after they get rid of Oogie Boogie, um, you know, they solve that problem, Uh and like you said earlier, like I mentioned in my blog that uh, Jack probably realized that Sally had feelings for him after he sang this song and kind of came to terms with who he is. But, you know, I think that you bring up a better point. I think that it's very likely that when Santa said, you know, next time you get these crazy ideas, I'd listen to her. That's probably actually when Jack realized that, oh, yeah, she cares about me and she's been trying to warn me about this the entire time and I wasn't listening. Um, He says, "Uh, Sally, I can't believe I never realized that you and then he's interrupted. And that always drives me crazy. Like to this day, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, no, don't interrupt. I want to know what he's going to say. (laughs) It was probably going to be something like, I never realized that you care about me. I never realized that you have feelings for me. I never realized that you were trying to warn me about this the whole time. Like it was probably going to be something like that, but I just always want to know like what he was going to say (laughs) maybe it was all the above and they didn't want to commit so they just had it cut off (laughs) yeah yeah one thing that kind of does bug me too is that um you know oogie is destroyed he's killed um but then in this final scene where well not final actually it's close to being the final scene um you know santa I I think that it's him that does it, which means he must have some really insane supernatural powers. But um, (laughs) uh, Santa (laughs) causes it to snow in Halloween Town, which uh, none of the that's another reason why I said earlier that, you know, Jack had no idea what that was and, and ate it like, yeah, clearly he didn't because none of them do like. It's snowing and they're all like, you know, and they, they even reprise what's this, you know, a lot of the characters are, they see the snow and they're like, what's this, what's this, you know? (laughs) So, uh, it it apparently has never snowed in Halloween town before, which makes sense. Um, I would imagine that it's probably like perpetually autumn there. 
Um, yeah. But anyway, um, you know, like Lock, Shock, and Barrel were, I mean, kidnapped the Sandy Claws. They were literally singing about creative ways to brutally murder this man. <laughs> <laughs> They're not good kids at all. They're, and the thing is, like, I was doing some research into this movie for the trivia section and that was one thing i came across i ended up not including it because i knew it was going to come up in conversation anyway but i don't remember who it was it might have been tim burton it might have been henry Selick. i can't remember which one of them said it but one of them said that they do not consider lock shock and barrel to be villains they're just very extremely mischievous trick-or-treaters and i'm just like <laughs> Okay, but I mean emphasis on the word extreme because they're going above and beyond just mischief. They're they're putting people's lives in danger. Like they they delivered Sandy Claus to Oogie Boogie knowing what Oogie Boogie was going to do to him and reveling in it. You know, so it, to me they're not just mischievous trick-or-treaters. Mischievous trick-or-treaters TP people's houses. They throw eggs at people's <laughs> houses, you know. Uh, they steal candy like that. They don't try to murder people. <laughs> so, um, but here's the thing, like Oogie Boogie, he's destroyed, he's killed. But then in this scene where we see everybody playing in the snow, making snow angels, throwing snowballs at each other, lock, shock and barrel are right in on that fun, having fun with everybody else as if they've been heroes the whole time. And it's like, okay, so apparently there are no consequences for them. Like, I don't know. It just seems very weird to me that all of a sudden, in fact, aren't they the ones that interrupt Jack when he's about to tell Sally, you know, <laughs> he's like, I can't believe that I never realized that you, and then I believe it's lock shock and barrel that interrupt him and say like, you know, uh, they, they help him up. Right. They, they like throw a rope right. down or something. And it's like, okay, when did that switch happen? You know, they're minors. <laughs> That is true. And hopefully, yeah, I would hope that it's just, it's one of those situations where, I mean, it's, it's what, like a 78 minute movie. It, it, it's, you know, and like I said, it was probably very expensive to make and they, they had to just focus on the essential stuff, you know? Um, but it's another situation where I just feel like I would have liked to have seen a scene where, you know, Jack had some sort of conversation with them and, Maybe they said, uh, oh, well, we were just terrified of the Oogie Boogie because he was blackmailing us or, you know, we didn't want to be on his bad list. So, but uh, the very, very, very last scene of this movie is my favorite scene of the whole movie. I love this scene so much. Um, Sally is sitting on top of that spirally hill that is just such a wonderful image from this movie. I love that spirally hill. Um, and she's sitting on top of it. Jack, he joins her on this hill. Like I said, the melody from Sally's song is reprised here. And this is just my favorite, favorite scene. I just love this. It's so beautiful. I love the words here. I love the lyrics here. Um, you know, uh, Jack sings to her, um, My dearest friend, if you don't mind, I'd like to join you by your side. Where we can gaze into the stars and sit together now and forever. For it is plain as anyone can see. We're simply meant to be. It's just beautiful. I, I get chills every time in that scene and 
And I just love too how it's like a, it, it echoes. I mean, not only does it have the same melody as Sally's song, but it echoes what she says at the end that, you know, like um, it's, oh, it's never to become. Yeah. No, I think not. It's never to become for I am not the one. Yeah. But then like in this final line here, you know, it's kind of like echoing that, but no, like I, it, we're meant to be together. You know, like you were wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, I, yeah, I, I really, really, I love this last scene. I love it so much. Um, it always like every time the, the credits come up, you know, like that scene ends and the end credits come up every mm-hmm. single time I watch this movie, I just feel this exhilaration. Like, Oh, I just had such a great adventure. You know, yeah. I just had such a great experience and, you know, I almost want to start it over and watch it again. You know, <laughs> I just, I love this movie so much, which is a great segue into our ratings. So despite the few plot holes that I pointed out, there are definitely, I think, a few plot holes in this movie, a couple of continuity errors, possibly. Um, I just, maybe because I first saw this movie when I was such a young kid and I have such fond childhood memories and teenage memories associated with it, uh, but yeah, I just, I love this movie. I love Jack. I have such fond memories associated with it. It's one of the first movies I remember loving, you know, that I remember really, Aww. really loving. Um, so yeah, this is just, uh, it's an easy, easy, easy 10 out of 10 for me. It's just, yeah. I-, I love this movie so much. It's probably in my top five favorite movies of all time. If not top five, absolutely top 10. I mentioned last week how excited I was to talk about this and, uh, or not last week, but in the last episode, um, I, uh, which was definitely more than a week ago. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mentioned how I, how excited I was to talk about this movie. So yeah, just love this movie. How about you? Uh, I love it too. Uh, it, it's, it's just as magical to me as the holiday specials on TV of old. And um, the plot holes weren't super obvious to me, so maybe that's a good sign <laughs> that, you know, they didn't jump out at me. So I would also give it a 10 out of 10. Yeah, and I've seen other people say the same thing. Like, they've noticed, like, in uh, discussions online and stuff, I've seen some people point out similar issues. Like, you know, how did Jack get back and forth between worlds without going through a door? You know, things like that. I've seen people point stuff yeah. like that out. But almost unanimously almost universally anytime someone points something like that out they will also say but it doesn't impact my opinion of the movie at all like i still love this movie so yeah i think you're right that's sign of a good movie that you know there might be a couple of plot holes and yet they don't bother you at all it's like star wars i mean if you really nitpick star wars there's all kinds of stuff that's not yeah a lot of movies do have plot holes because we're only human when we write a story we're potentially gonna not account for something like i mentioned in our mistress of evil discussion like how come philip never kissed his father on the cheek or on his forehead you know like no one ever thought of that um so yeah plot holes do happen but uh usually unless they're like really 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 egregious where it's like how did you not think about that how did you not consider that you know like unless they're really that bad they usually don't bother me too much well, it's but. like in Star Wars, they don't shoot R2-D2 and C-3PO out of the, when they're in the pod. And they say, oh, there's no life forms aboard. Just let it go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that would have ended the whole movie really quick, but yep. still. <laughs> yep, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's actually a really good point. Yep. All right. So, uh, yeah, that's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, this was so much fun to talk about this with you, Rick. Um, Thank you. Yeah, this was, this was so much fun. Uh, it was 
you know, it's always a lot more fun having a guest on because, you know, it's more conversational. It feels more like a conversation as opposed to a lecture. Whereas when I'm talking yeah. by myself, I kind of just feel like I'm lecturing and yeah. it's not really a conversation. So it's, it's always a lot more fun having a guest on. Uh, if you would like to contribute feedback to the podcast, and it can be about the podcast itself, it can be about a Disney movie that you really want to talk about, it can be your thoughts on a movie that I've covered already or a movie that I haven't covered yet, but probably will in the future. Um, you know, or you maybe want to share your thoughts on the next movie that we're doing, which as we've said already is the shape of water. I would love for you to reach out. I would love to hear from you. There are a number of ways you can do that. You can email disneyshpodcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash disneyshpodcast. You can follow the Instagram page, which is Disneyish Podcast. And you can also, if you would like, follow my personal Instagram page, which is The Lost Passenger. And of course, this contact info will also be in the show notes, as always. Um, but be sure to subscribe wherever it is that you're listening, because that way, when a new episode drops, you will be notified. But until next time, this has been Disney's reminding you that if you ever have the crazy idea of taking over somebody else's holiday, listen to Sally. <laughs>